Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Well, good morning. It's glad to be back with y'all. And this morning we're going to be talking about Kingdom Future. And uh, the gospel of the kingdom we've been talking about is indeed good news. That word gospel means good news. And part of that good news and the part we're going to be focusing on is that we wait for and we hope for and we anticipate the return of Jesus to set up the kingdom on earth. And so that's what we're going to be reflecting on today. We're going to be reflecting on hope and on what it's going to look like in the future. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about kingdom anticipated. So what does that future vision of what life is going to be like, how does that change how we live today? And how does that motivate us today? But that's going to be next week. Next week, we're going to focus on kingdom future today. And I was thinking um, about hope. And uh, today, for those of you who are football fans, today is the day where the NFC Championship game and the AFC Championship game are being played. And uh, I am a Chiefs fan. Some of you may know that from a social post we put together last week. Uh, And Adam, who plays bass, is a Bengals fan. And I've invited him over tonight. We're going to watch the game together. And both of us hope for our teams to win tonight. And one of us is going to be disappointed. And I can tell you it's not going to be me. Okay? Uh, But see, the only way I can... Uh, alleviate uh, Adam's disappointment tonight is by diminishing his hope now. So think about hope from a worldly perspective. It's transient, and the only way for me to help him not suffer as much tonight is to tell him that he doesn't need to worry about it at all. He doesn't need to hope for it at all. And so that is the kind of hope that the world has to offer us. It's, it's, it's fleeting, it's transient, and it's limited. Uh, It's very limited. And the hope that we have that we're going to be discussing this morning is so much bigger than that. It's so much greater than that. So uh, just to recap a little bit of what we've seen so far in this series, uh, we've seen that Jesus went around preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Uh, He did not go around really talking about his death and his resurrection. Those were private teachings. Uh, and his disciples actually rejected those private teachings. Uh, but the kingdom of God is this idea that Jesus was announcing God's reign was coming back in some sense, uh, and then in a fuller sense in the future. We saw last week that the bad news was that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rejected what God wanted for them, that servant leadership model, and they decided that their way was better than God's way. And so what we're going to be looking at this morning is, What is this future hope that would have excited that group of people that Jesus was initially preaching to in what we call the gospel period? What what was the message that he was sharing with them that was exciting them? Why were the disciples on board with it? Why were they preaching it? What was so exciting about it? And this is the thing that we're looking forward to is this kingdom future. We've also talked about three big patterns that we've seen. Uh, Number one, what God wanted in the beginning, he's going to get in the end. We'll talk about that a little bit today. We did that in the first one as well. Uh, The second one that God taught throughout time principles of selflessness, sacrifice, and upside-down leadership with the intent for us to follow that example. We talked about that a lot last week. Uh, The one that we're going to focus on a little bit more today is this number three. The greatest desires of our hearts, this deep desire for justice, we prayed about that this morning, fairness, peace, prosperity, uh, these are all things that are promised by God. And they're things that do not come for us at all in the world. The world cannot offer them. 
So um, before we get into Kingdom Future, I do want to point out that there are many different views on the end times. And if you've ever watched uh, like a detective show or if you've ever watched like a conspiracy theory show, you've got the board, the bulletin board, and it has pictures all over the place and there's webs going everywhere. Well, if you listen to end time sermons or if you read end times books, some of those can look like that. And I'm not trying to make fun of any, anyone. They're like... 12 or 15 or 20 events that you've got to sort of like line up and figure out how they're all going to take place. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize any of that at all, but I did want to point out um, my version of it up here is that uh, there are two kingdoms, okay? So there is a millennium. I do believe in a literal millennium kingdom. You don't have to if you don't want to. That's fine. Uh, and then there's an eternal kingdom. So up here is the simplified version. You've got the death and resurrection of Jesus, okay? We all know about that. Then there's now, what we're doing right now. And then at some point, Jesus comes back, and I think that's when the millennial kingdom happens. And then at some point, that wraps up, there's like a final battle, and then there's an eternal kingdom. So there are two future kingdoms. And I've only been talking about it singularly to this point, and I'm going to continue doing that, because we're going to make what's called a simplifying assumption. Okay, so I come from the world of math and science. That's my background. And a simplifying assumption is something that you do to make talking about something a little bit easier. And the Bible does that too. It does it about this topic of the kingdom. Many of the prophecies don't tell you whether it's talking about the millennial kingdom or if it's talking about the eternal kingdom or if it's talking about both of them. Um, and so we're going to do the same thing. We're going to essentially say, when I say the kingdom future, I'm talking about both these kingdoms, but I'm going to talk about it singularly. So hopefully that's not too confusing. I'm trying to simplify things. Um, and another example of that is uh, pi. How many of you remember the mathematical term pi? Uh, 3.14, that's a simplifying assumption. Uh, the number digits of pi go on and on and on forever. And some of you may have had calculators that took it out to a number of dec uh, decimal places. But we're going to do 3.14 for the purposes of our sermons. We're going to just simplify things a little bit. And remember, we're looking at the forest and not the trees, uh, much less the branches and the leaves. So again, looking at this picture of the forest, uh, we can sort of view the millennial kingdom as the closer in trees that are not covered in mist. I think there's a little bit more descriptive in the, uh, description in the Bible of the millennial kingdom. And then the eternal kingdom is sort of off in the haze a little bit. Not that it is heaven, I'm not trying to go that direction with it, but that it is a little bit murkier exactly what it looks like. Um, and so anyway, that picture is I think a little bit helpful for us. Uh, but again, we're talking about kingdom future this morning. And uh, I really want to spend some time building up the thought world of these people that Jesus was originally preaching to. So we're going to go through at this time a little bit of the history of the Old Testament and I think why this particular message was so interesting and why they would have heard it possibly one way, whereas we can from 2,000 years later look at it slightly differently. And so the history of the Hebrew people, I'm going to start with Abraham. Uh, God called Abraham to move from his uh, family's home and take his little tribe and go travel to a land that he was going to tell them about, tell him about. And he intended that land to be for him and for his seed. And that is the first covenant that God uh, makes uh, sort of after Adam and Noah, he makes a covenant with Abraham. And that's sort of a, a new thing, this idea of land. Uh, and so then God promises uh, a son and a whole line of people. And so Abraham obeys and eventually has a child in old age. And eventually that tribe expands to like 70 or 75 people. And they go down to Egypt to avoid famine. 
So then a couple hundred years later, God sends Moses. Moses leads the people out of Egypt and into, uh, eventually into the, to the gates of the promised land. Joshua ends up taking them in. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Exodus later today, but the Exodus is like one of the big themes of the Bible. It's like a huge deal. Uh, so then under Joshua's leadership, the Israelites actually enter into the promised land. So now they've got the land, uh, but they don't have the full extent that God promised them. Uh, and they actually never really got the full extent that God promised them. Uh, then there were a period of time when the judges ruled Israel, and there were uh, cycles of good judges and, and sort of cycles where the people didn't really follow the judges, and so they sort of go back and forth between prosperity and abundance when they're obeying God and then having a lot of difficulty when they don't. Uh, and this cycle really continues even after they ask God for a king. You know, they come to Samuel, they ask God for a king, um, and then that's sort of like the formal rejection of God as king over Israel. And then so then God has Samuel anoint Saul. Uh, Saul doesn't do a great job, so God has Samuel anoint David. And then there's that period of time where they're both sort of anointed, but uh, Saul is on the throne and, and uh, David is not. So then uh, eventually David comes to the throne. God makes a covenant with David. We get additional information. Now God says, not only am I going to give you a land, he's also going to give you a king to reign on David's throne forever. And that becomes an important thing uh, for the people of Israel to look forward to, a future Davidic king that would rule in prosperity. Um, and Solomon was sort of like the baby version of that, I guess, and, and uh, doesn't really fulfill everything. So David and Solomon die. The kingdom splits in two, and that leads into, I think, sort of the downward spiral of Israel and Judah. And again, they both go through periods of relative prosperity, just like during the Judges, uh, but mostly bad. And then eventually they both get taken over uh, by different empires and um, end up in exile. And then um, after the book of Malachi, uh, the Greeks come in and the Greeks take over everything. And then by Jesus' birth, the Romans had taken control. So here we have, by the time of Christ, the people that Jesus was personally ministering to, the people that Jesus was personally teaching and preaching to and healing and doing all the things that he was doing, this group of people had experienced about 500 years of being under external control. And this was a very proud group of people. This is a group of people that uh, believed that they were God's chosen people, and they were God's chosen people. Uh, they were chosen by God, and they didn't fulfill God's call, and because of that, they were dealing with some difficulty. But they remembered these promises made to Abraham that they would rule this part of the world. They remembered the promise made to David that there would be a king that would throw off these uh, external powers and who would rule in peace and justice. And so they desperately wanted the people that Jesus was preaching to, they desperately wanted God to come and reign as king again. And they wanted him to throw off specifically the Roman rule. They wanted this Messiah, this deliverer to come. So uh, we're going to look at some sections now in the, what we call the Old Testament. And these are the types of things that they would have known about. These people would have been studied in and they would have heard about their entire lives. This is what their hope or their expectation was about. And so I want to ask the question, are these events still future? And then the second question I'm going to ask is, are these events in a disembodied heaven or is it on a restored earth? So I want to uh, give a quick synopsis of a couple of sections in Isaiah. You can turn to Isaiah chapter 11. That's where we'll get eventually. 
But there are a couple of sections in Isaiah that um, are also interesting that I just wanted to summarize quickly. And that is Isaiah 2 is a kingdom passage. And in Isaiah 2, here are the things that happen in the first four verses. Uh, The nations come to Jerusalem for God's guidance. It says that God will teach all peoples his ways. It says he will judge between the nations. So there are more nations than just Israel involved with this. And finally, humanity will destroy weapons of war. So uh, is this what we're experiencing right now? (laughs) No. So this is still future. And then the second question is, is this in a disembodied heaven or is this on a restored earth? It's us on earth. We're talking about Jerusalem. We're talking about, uh, you know, agriculture. We'll be talking about uh, animals and other things today as well. This is a, a vision of a peaceful earth. So here's one vision from Isaiah of a peaceful earth. Um, And then God will rule as king. And he settles disputes just like uh, Moses did, just like Solomon did. Uh, God was the one who's going to settle these disputes. In Isaiah 35, there's another great kingdom passage. um, And it talks about the wilderness blossoming. It talks about those with physical maladies being healed. Uh, It also talks about those with mental concerns, anxiety, uh, all of those being alleviated and taken care of. Man, that's a thing that we deal with a lot in modern times, isn't it? Anxiety, dealing with the mental side, especially in the, in the West. Um, we deal with that a lot. And it says, many will come to Jerusalem in joy. And so, again, here we have a picture of what the future looks like, um, how amazing it will be. So here in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, we're going to read a section here. And what I like about this is, you know, from our perspective, you know, we've talked a little bit about what they expected, but I want to talk a little about what we expect. Um, I don't know about you, but I grew up in church and I had a very fuzzy view of what heaven would look like or what the future would hold. And I think what's important in, in realizing that it's on a restored earth, that this kingdom is on a restored earth, what that helps with is now we can go back to Isaiah. Now we can go back to Ezekiel. Now we can go back to uh, the other prophets. We're going to go to Amos today. Uh, and you could go to tons of places. You could go to Joel. You could go all over the place. And now we're going to find clues and actual prophecies about what the future looks like. And if you're looking for a disembodied heaven, especially in the Old Testament, you're just not really going to find much. And that's why people's view of the future is sort of murky. And I think as we consider hope, the idea that our hope is something tangible, it's something real, it's something that we can imagine, grasp onto, and hold onto, that's incredibly powerful. And so let's read this passage in Isaiah 11. Uh, verses 1 through 9. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This is talking about Jesus. Verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. I'll stop here briefly. This is a description of who we have now come to know as Jesus, the Messiah. But notice here that the spirit of wisdom and understanding rests upon him. So he fulfills what Solomon should have been. That's what this is. It's a fullness of what Solomon should have been. And then look at verse 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. So we get righteous judgment. We get this idea of servant leadership, the idea of putting other people first and really discerning uh, what, how we should handle a situation. 
verse 4, it brings in some specific things here about that. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Uh, we're going to talk about this later in the series, but God's plan was always to take care of the marginalized, the poor, uh, the people who are outcasts for various reasons. Uh, God's plan was always to take care of them. And here he's talking about this future person who will do this for, um, on behalf of God. Um, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Uh, 2 Thessalonians picks this up about Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 2.8, if you want to look at that. Uh, we're reading sections here that get quoted in the New Testament, uh, in some cases, multiple times. Uh, it's really exciting. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, verse 6, people always ask me, uh, are dogs going to be in heaven? <laughs> right? You got that movie from a while back, all dogs go to heaven. Well, there are going to be animals there. Verse 6, it says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fad calf together and a little child shall lead them. So things are going to be so calm and so responsive to the dominion of humanity that, you know, Jerry won't just have to train dogs. Jerry will get to train all sorts of stuff. You know, you'll have <laughs> wolves and leopards and all sorts of stuff. Um, and a little child will be able to lead them. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze and the young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So they will no longer eat the same things that they eat today. Verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so here at the end, we have the beauty of uh, this harm, harmonious uh, whole society living together, uh, the animals and humanity living together in peace, and the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. This is not a disembodied heaven. It says very specifically here, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So what does the future look like? The future looks like a perfect king reigning on David's throne. It looks like a time when justice will be finally served. It looks like a future in which the poor will not be downcast or taken advantage of. It looks like a time when the animal kingdom will be set at peace with humanity. It's an amazing place. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 25. Like I said, there are visions like this all over the Old Testament now that you, when we recalibrate our thinking to this idea of a restored earth. In Isaiah 25, uh, there's another one. Um, I'm a big fan of eating. I'm a big fan of parties. And that's what it describes here. And uh, I think this is possibly the passage that Jesus was thinking of when he says that, uh, to his disciples, that in the future kingdom, we will sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at a feast. And it says in, in Isaiah 25, verse 6, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. So just in this first couple of verses, it's very exciting. We have a huge feast uh, of all these foods and all these drinks that are going to be unbelievable. And on top of that, it's not just for Israel. It, the veil is taken away and everyone is invited in. Verse 8, it says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Uh, this gets picked up in the book of Revelation. It gets quoted in the book of Revelation. Um, in that 21 and 22 section. 
and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is what hope does for us. Hope gives us the strength to hold on to these visions. And in that day, we can be just like these people prophesied of saying, we have waited. This is our God that he might save us. This is our Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So this is, these are some of the visions that the, the would have been in the background of the people in that first century uh, Jewish uh, time where Jesus was preaching. Let's turn to Amos chapter 9. Their hope is the same as our hope. The only advantage we have is we have the advantage of looking back and seeing that the Messiah had to come twice. <laughs> That's the one thing that they didn't have. Um, they were anticipating all these future realities right then and right there when the Messiah showed up. And that is in large part why the Jews rejected Jesus during his earthly ministry. It's because they didn't understand that there was a first coming where he demonstrates how the kingdom should be lived out now. And then there's a second coming where he's going to fully enact these things. So in Amos chapter 9, there's a, a beautiful thing. Uh, beautiful, another beautiful vision here. And for the gardeners and farmers in here, that's what I included it for. In Amos chapter 9, verse 11, these are the last words, by the way, of the book of Amos. The book of Amos ends with this beautiful vision of what the future will look like. And um, if you read the whole book of Amos, you'll understand it's not a cheerful book all the way through. <laughs> so this is not written at a time in Israel's history where things are going great. Uh, and so the idea that the book of Amos ends on such a high note tells you the power that hope has in the minds and hearts of these people, and then it can also be in our hearts as well. In Amos 9, verse 11, it says, In that day I'll raise up the booth of David that, has, that is fallen and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So again, you have this idea of a Davidic king coming back. Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So again, all the nations are going to be brought into this. Verse 13, behold, the, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Uh, just to talk about this a little bit, it's a little bit hard for us. We don't live in an agricultural society anymore. Um, our growing seasons, depending on the crops, last between like four, seven, eight months, you know, four, four to eight months. And then usually there's like three or four months where the land just is dead or, you know, like winter. It's winter right now here in Kentucky, and you cannot really grow much out there right now. Um, what this is saying is, is that by the time you go to plant seeds the next year, the guys are still taking stuff off the land. They're still pulling fruit off of the land. They're still harvesting crops by the time you come back to uh, prepare the land again. That's amazing. It's, it's remarkable. And when you compare that also with the one we didn't go to about all the, the desert is going to be beautiful and blossoming. I mean, the earth is going to look completely different. It's going to look completely different. Verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. 
um, sort of behind this is the fact that the people were taken away from their land. So the people in Amos' time, the people during the exile of Israel and of Judah, the various exiles that they went through, they would plant things and then they'd get taken over and taken away and not even get to enjoy what they had planted. And so what God is saying here is that you will not have to worry about that again. You will be in your land. There will be peace. You will be able to reap what you have sown. So all this, these three visions we've looked at, all fit with Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. The meek will inherit the earth. So the people of Israel, at least some of them, were ready for this kingdom message. We can argue whether the Pharisees are ready for it or not, but some of them were ready for it. They were ready for God to throw off this Roman occupation and set up the Davidic king on the throne. That's not what Jesus did during his first coming. It's what he's going to do during his second coming. So just like the Old Testament believers who looked at these passages and really held on to them in moments of absolute tragedy when they were taken away in exile, we can hold on to the hope of the second return of Jesus. Because the prophecies that we're reading today are still future. They're still going to come true. And so we are carrying on the faithful legacy of those who held on to that hope while waiting for Jesus' first coming. Now, do we live in a time right now that's free of worry, free of despair, free of pain, and free of trouble? No. But even on the days when we are in despair, when we are tempted with doubt, we can remember the hope that we have in Christ. Uh, one of the things I think about, um, I'm a sci-fi geek, uh, but if you, if you pay attention, if you watch sci-fi or you read sci-fi, if you've been paying attention, especially I think in the last 20 years, I would say I've seen a sort of a shift this direction. Have you noticed that more and more of the sci-fi stuff that's coming out has this really dystopian or like really dark future? where it's like you're in the future and aliens have come. I'm thinking like Independence Day, like aliens have come and taken us over and like Will Smith needs to like set us free from the aliens, right? But like it's really, really dangerous kind of a future. Um, or, you know, you have the post-apocalyptic whole genre, right, where there's like nuclear war and then there's like people just like pushing shopping carts around and like trying to survive and zombies are coming out of the woodwork and stuff, right? Like think about all of these images that our society is filled with and inundated with um, about how dark the future is and how dark the future looks like. And to be honest, even if I wasn't a sci-fi geek, if you just look around at the world right now, you've got Russian war with Ukraine where nuclear war has been threatened. You've got um, you know, social justice issues just in our country, much less than other countries around the world that aren't uh, like our country in, in many respects. Um, you just think about all the injustice, all the people that die of hunger every day, all the people that don't have access to clean water, something like one billion people worldwide don't have daily access to clean water. It's just unbelievable. I mean, just think about, this is not sci-fi, this is reality. This is what we live in and what we're surrounded with. And we live in a time when all of this information is accessible to us. If we lived even 50 years ago, most of us would live our lives blissfully ignorant of many of these things. It's just unbelievable. That is what the world has to offer people. There is no hope in the world around us. So when you think about what we have to offer, we are not offering people eternal life. I should rephrase that. We're not offering them just eternal life. 
Because eternal life lived on this planet as it is right now is not good news. And for the person who is suicidal, the person who is having doubts, the person who is facing something awful like a divorce or the loss of a loved one or whatever the case might be, in the moment right now, telling them that they have eternal life isn't enough. Telling them that they have eternal life with the one who loves them more than anyone could ever possibly love them. With peace, with justice, with perfect love. Now that is something to hope in. That's the kind of good news we have to give people. Hebrews 6 says that we are to hold on to the hope set before us, that it can be an anchor throughout our lives, that God will bring all the promises to pass. You know, we believe that he's going to send his son again in power to defeat darkness for once and for all. And so when someone we know dies, we don't sorrow like those that have no hope, like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. Why? Because we have hope that God is faithful to reward our brothers and sisters in Christ with life in the age to come in eternity, full of all the good things that God has laid out for us in his scripture. I think about what Paul says in a couple different passages. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, Paul, uh, just to recap briefly, uh, was shipwrecked multiple times, uh, <laughs> was beaten multiple times, was persecuted much of his ministry. And so when he calls his life light momentary affliction, this is not someone who lives... Uh, in Beverly Hills, in a gated community, and plays golf every day, talking about a light momentary affliction. This is someone who's been through things, has experienced things, and he considers that light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And he was a man well acquainted with these prophecies, these visions from the Old Testament. In Ephesians 2, he tells us, so that in the coming ages he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So again, this future that we have to look forward to, it is eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It is immeasurable riches of grace. So in closing, there are two great biblical images that help describe where we are right now in the biblical narrative. Uh, kingdom future versus our anticipatory role in the kingdom today and how we can experience some kingdom realities in some sense now. Uh, one of them is something that our friend Dave has talked about quite a bit, the Saul versus David uh, imagery. So David, who is Jesus, has been anointed, but Saul, the devil, is still on the throne. He's still the God of this world, as, as Paul says. And so we can imagine, we can view ourselves as part of David's army, waiting for that time of David to take his rightful place on the throne. And as Dave likes to say, the pretender is still on the throne. <laughs> and yes, he is still on the throne right now. But there is a time when the Davidic king will come back and the kingdom will be restored. The other one I mentioned briefly earlier is the Exodus. So in this, in this imagery, God has sent us Moses, who is Jesus, and again, Moses is a type of Christ, says in Deuteronomy 18 that there would be a prophet like unto Moses. That's Jesus. And Jesus has already delivered us from Egypt in some sense. He's delivered us from the bondage of sin. But 
are we in the promised land right now? No, we are still in the wilderness. We're still in tents and we're awaiting our chance to go into that future kingdom of God and live in the fullness of what God has in store for us. So these are the types of things that we can hold on to and think about as we consider what's, what the world is going to look like when Jesus comes back. And again, I gave you, we went to three passages. We talked about five from just the Old Testament. There are many, many, many more. <laughs> and if you want to look at more of them, I encourage you to uh, watch Sean Finnegan's class on the kingdom that's available on his podcast, Restitutio. He goes through many of them. He goes through them very quickly, uh, but he goes through a lot more of them than I was able to get through today. Um, so there, is many, there are many more uh, promises and many more prophecies to en uh, enjoy on that. So the Bible says that the joy that was set before him is that's what allowed Jesus to endure the cross. So thinking about that, we have to remind ourselves that Jesus needed hope. He needed something tangible to hold on to, this future vision of what God was going to do for him. And we know that minimally that was raising him from the dead. But I think he also saw all these things that we've talked about today and how he would be able to bring justice to earth, how he'd be able to bring all these beautiful things to pass underneath God's authority. So what is the joy set before us? What is the joy set before you? The joy that's set before all of us that's laid out in these scriptures is that the King has come. Jesus has come. He has lifted our bonds. He has begun this process of bringing heaven to earth. And we have the opportunity to spend eternity in the most amazing, exciting, fulfilling place we could possibly imagine. No worry, no sorrow, no death, no sickness, no war. So that's the hope we can hold on to. That's a tangible hope. And we can trust that God is going to bring it to pass. It's not fleeting. We can absolutely trust that God will bring all these things to pass. And that's the kind of hope that we can bring to people outside the faith. That's the kind of hope we can encourage one another when we're not feeling so great, when some, some bad things happen in this life, because they do. We can continue to encourage each other in that hope and share that hope with others. Let's pray. Father, we've seen some amazing visions this morning, and we're just scratching the surface of what you have prepared for us in Christ in eternity. We're just so thankful that you have um, decided that you were going to redeem the earth, decided that you are going to redeem humanity. You could have given up on us, God, and you didn't. You worked through Israel. You worked through Jesus. You worked through our brothers and sisters throughout history so that we could be here in this moment having this conversation, talking about the great and wonderful things that you are going to do in the future. And so, God, we just are overwhelmed with thankfulness, with gratitude for this hope that you have set before us for how we can... Uh, be a part of that, bringing that hope to other people, how we can um, just look, look so forward to a time when all of these uh, terrible things about the planet and about our experiences on the earth will go away, that you will uh, wipe away all the tears from our eyes, that we will experience uh, true, true life forever with you and with your son Jesus. So God, we're just so thankful for that message today and every day in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.